Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us Michelle Tempest, who is a partner at a leading healthcare management consultancy firm. She is an author, she is a psychiatrist by background, as well as many other accolades. But the sweet spot, and I think the envy of many, is you are at the intersection of many worlds, clinical, academia, innovation, investment and strategy um, and have had an amazing and distinguished career so it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today Michelle how are you welcome to the show I'm well but it's an honor to be here thank you thank you for having me no worries at all so we have a lot to talk about we want to pick your brains a fair bit but we want to take it all the way back to the motivations the kind of the early stage of career you know why did you want to study medicine why did you want to become a doctor wow we are going back okay So as you always wanted to be a doctor ever since being a child uh, and all of those sorts of things around kind of, you know, wanting to help other people, all the classics, they're all true, right? They're all true Mm. for why many of us are motivated to do clinical medicine. Um, And it's a huge honor and a privilege to have worked on the wards. And I actually worked within the National Health Service uh, for well over a decade, so around 14 years of my life. And uh, yeah, I mean, I still have colleagues, I still have friends, and uh, I have to say that my heart still belongs to medicine. No, thank you for sharing that. And the other thing we always want to ask is specialty of choice. Of all the specialties, you you picked psychiatry, um, which we know is a difficult specialty, and a lot of junior doctors actually rank it at the bottom, right? They're never so keen. And I don't know if it's due to exposure or they never you know, get their awareness. But what drew you to psychiatry? So you're right. In fact, um, I thought these days it was a bit more popular. There you go. I'm, I'm... <laughs> so, but in my day, which is, you know, like last millennium kind of time of, of choosing sort of subspecialties, it was not popular. Um, and... I think that uh, I think that now, as time has evolved, I think that hopefully it is becoming more popular. And my understanding now is that you do get quite a lot of applications uh, mm. to do specialty training in psychiatry. Now, uh, if I were to go back uh, as to the reason that I did psychiatry is um, I actually did uh, an accident and emergency rotation uh, back, mm. as, back in one of my jobs. And in A&E, and I, I would advocate for everybody to do A&E during their career path, you see everything that comes through, uh, you know, everything that comes through the front door at least um mm. and what is very beautiful about that as a specialty is that you sort of see pediatric and you see everything uh and that was when i fell in love with psychiatry because when you see these really complicated uh, cases that that came into a and e that was where i sort of felt right that's where i want my uh you know they're the people that i i wanted to learn more about um and that's how I, that's very much how i chose it mm. no, you are right i do agree everyone should do an a and e block just I think it's the best way to get exposure to all the different specialties because in med school you know I'm afraid you don't get exposure to as many tell us a bit more about when things start to change for you because where you start is obviously very different to where you are now um tell us the exposure how you start to kind of go into the world of consultancy was it frustration was it the pay was it you know you're bored of your job tell us a bit more about that okay well let me just like tackle pay because you've you've flagged pay right oh, now sorry. <laughs> uh, no 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 i i just want to actually flag some support for for kind of many people that i'm sure are watching this in the fact yeah. that i don't think anybody goes into healthcare who are money who's money orientated otherwise you probably wouldn't do it right i mean mm-hmm. they're bright people moving into a career of hospital or, or primary care medicine now over time 
um, I think that all doctors and clinicians have been highlighting that, you know, that, that um, yeah, that pay has to keep up in accordance with kind of how much debt we're all in, right? I remember, I remember <laughs> being a junior doctor and being in lots of debt from being a student. Uh, so yeah, I think that first up in terms of pay, I think that um, I think it's very sad that people are having to strike, but I think pay has been mm. on the on the agenda, and I think we'll come back to that in terms of politics and and the kind yeah. of the broader scheme of kind of mm. where healthcare fits in into the modern globalized world of many job opportunities. Uh, so uh, to return to then kind of how I made I personally made a pivot. Look in my day, which is historic, right? It, I think that the opportunities weren't really there so much um, in modern day medicine there are many opportunities to do many other things. So for instance, you know, we get quite a lot of people at Candesic, where I work as a healthcare consultant coming in for kind of FY3 or to do internships. That kind of capability wasn't there. In my day, being perfectly honest, it is often around kind of friends and who you know. Mm. <laughs> so my very, very, very first taster of management consultancy was to actually join uh, Candesic on a project which I did during my annual leave. Mm. And in that project, uh, I was actually working in the uh, mental health sector, so behavioral health sector. And I actually found that when I returned to the front line, it actually made me a better doctor. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I know. And I wasn't expecting that. Uh, because when you are there seeing patients in a one-to-one -one way, and that's vital and important, and thank you every doctor that's watching this, that's doing this, you're there seeing each individual. And of course, what consultancy does, it lets you sort of see the slightly larger picture. And one of the things which I was doing, which was looking at more sort of integrated care and looking at joining up care pathways between community, primary care and hospital, meant that when I uh, did one project and returned to the front line, I was actually much more aware of perhaps the sort of broader scheme. And mm. in fact, you know, even sort of lifted the blinkers away from being just a pure NHS vision right because yeah. actually there are very everything from home care to community care to um in fact some other hospitals particularly in mental health back in the day were not always uh state operated so were not always nhs operated and as a result of that i felt that i could actually access a clearer care pathway for the people that i was treating um, and that was kind of my first foray into consulting hmm. i'm also curious to know what your colleagues thought when you took this kind of stint in consultancy on, uh, on your annual leave, was it? Because I'm trying to think back then, it must have been very alien to them, right? You're a clinician, your bread and butter is in a hospital. What were their thoughts? Oh, it was the dark side. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, back in my day, it was um, if people, if, if consultants were doing private practice, um, yeah. it was, it was kind of told that, you know, they're off to the naughty place with that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, whereas now, you know, I think that what we've realized is demand is so high, we need to have yeah. as many people and as many solutions coming to the table. Now, what I would say um, and flag and um, I'll say a shout out to my sister, who's, a, who's, who's still an NHS surgeon. Uh, oh, and yeah, no, I mean, obviously, every every clinician that's still in there is is. Uh, doing their, their daily duty. And I'm, I'm very, uh, very grateful that they're there. I think that what was in psychiatry as a subspecialty, though, around sort of 10 to 15 years ago, has actually come to bear in other specialties. And I say that because mm. if, if you remember, mental health has always been a bit of a Cinderella service, right? Yeah. We've never been with, even though I think it's an amazing topic, and I love all things to do with the brain, and I'm sure we're going to get onto that. It wasn't as sexy as transplant surgery, or yeah. cardiac, or being a cardiologist, or, you know, all of the other amazing opportunities mm. that you get. 
And in fact, funding wise, it was also slightly left behind. Now, mm. I find that what's happened perhaps 10 to 15 years ago in the world of mental health, behavioral health has actually come to bear now in other disciplines. And maybe that's mm. because of the fact of, you know, look, we are now there's more demand than there is supply. It's difficult mm. to work out where the next pot of funding money is going to come from. So some of the issues that I was experiencing back in my own specialty are now completely reflective of kind of what's yeah. happening in surgery and medicine. And, you know, some of these some of these very sexy topics that uh, that are people are out there, you know, that happen in secondary and tertiary care hospitals. Michelle, so I want to talk a little bit about consulting, right? Are you able to give us some insight into Mm. some projects that you've done, uh, the scale you've done it at? Because a lot of people will be thinking, okay, so a doctor has gone from psychiatry into consulting, has had now a broader vision of the, the pathways. Are you able to give us insight into a specific project? Yeah, I mean, why don't why don't very happy to uh, to try and answer answer questions around management consultancy, but mm. I guess I would just caveat it with the fact that I did the slowest ever cross taper of careers. <laughs> <laughs> so, though so you may remember in mental health, you can often like cross taper medications, and we are one of those sort of subspecialties that do that very slowly. Well, I kind of mirrored that in my own career. Uh, mm. And actually, I moved from doing uh, frontline hospital to working part time in two jobs and very, very slowly cross tapering. So often people will ask me, you know, um, you know, how quick is it to kind of move from one specialty to another? And let's be mm. honest, you know, business is a different language. So just like healthcare has its own language, business yeah. then has its own language. And so it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight. So the best way that I would sort of say to kind of get involved is a find out, do you really like it? Because I'm afraid the other thing that I have to say is the fact that it's um, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. <laughs> I was yeah. going to come on to that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, for instance, I mean, back in my day, we were doing the old fashioned over 100 hour weeks. I don't think that that's necessarily safe, nor was a good idea back in my day, uh, you know, somewhere 100, 160 sometimes. Uh, but consultancy can also be long hours, can be weekends. So you've still got to know why and what's your passion for wanting to do it. So I don't really sort of see my career as a career. I just sort of see it as me trying to solve different issues along my Mm. kind of pathway. Um, So for instance, originally, you know, I went into healthcare because I wanted to, you know, look after people. And then I went into psychiatry because those sort of issues seem quite complex to solve. And then I kind of have, have, have kind of gone out into uh, other arenas, still trying to be a problem solver, but with the passion yeah. mm. and the uh, motivation to actually improve care for the most vulnerable. Mm. So it's not so much about career. It's not so much about cash. It is just mm. around the pure fact that it takes a huge number of people to actually make change which I would include kind of polit- politicians and, and people who, who, who are investors as well to make that change. Mm, definitely. Yeah, I think I can already tell you're, you're, you're super passionate about the NHS, the system, the people. I feel as if the end goal, the, 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 the motivation is bigger than yourself in a career. I think it means more for you. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can just sense it straight off the bat. <laughs> Spot on. And and I would sort of say that, you know, look, I went into consulting because I actually wanted to make change within consulting. Yeah. So back mm. in my day, there weren't actually that many clinicians wanting to become management consultants. There weren't actually that many clinicians who were in the investor community wanting to invest in healthcare. And fundamentally, you know, we need that that kind of knowledge base it's a it's kind of a family of people isn't it to find the solution um and that knowledge sharing is is really key and that's very much the approach that i've always had to all of my uh sort of 
tasks and work projects, which is you're bringing together a multidisciplinary team. So of course the numbers have to add up. Of course that you know investors yeah. need to uh, to make a profit. But at the same time, if you're working for the state, that doesn't mean to sort of say that that's a bottomless pit of money. Right. Mm. We have to be accountable for the care that we're giving and know that it, it, it comes at a, you know, that there is always a, a good clinical outcome should actually yeah. be also financially the, the, the more logical way of doing it. Because a poor clinical outcome actually always costs the state or the investor yeah. more. So let's talk about some of the, the big problems that I think everyone wants to discuss a little bit now. Let's talk first a little bit about the NHS and let's talk a little bit about particularly the work, the workforce. Okay, all the doctors out there right now. What are some of the biggest pitfalls in your eyes with the NHS right now? We all love it. It's a great service. To be honest, from what, the background I came come from, uh, my family and everyone we wouldn't be able to afford healthcare if it wasn't for the NHS. So it is an incredible service. But what's happening in 2023? What are the biggest problems you're seeing? Everything is the biggest <laughs> problem that we're seeing, isn't it? So look, if we're to, to sort of unpack kind of the, the National Health Service is you're absolutely right, right? That the NHS, and it does do this, and we've all seen it on the front line, right? Is that it doesn't matter if you're a prince or a pauper, you will get it treated exactly the mm. same. You will, you yeah. can get access to care. Having said that, when it perhaps hasn't, um, you know, when you don't look after the maintenance, I don't know, we can take our own house, right? Let's mm. use that as an analogy. If mm. you have a house which is, you know, 75 years old and you're not sort of, you know, checking on the, the boiler and doing the basic maintenance. Yeah. When all of a sudden the winter comes, you've got a problem. Mm. Right? And that's kind of the way that we've approached the NHS. And I would sort of say that some of those those issues come from having quite a short term view of healthcare. Mm. Yeah. And if you take a real step back, actually, political terms, you know, these do actually, they're around five years, they can be shorter. And to do healthcare, just like you've got to love a house, right? Mm. You actually have to love the system. And you have to find solutions that actually could mean that, you know, look, you've got to change the whole pipes in the house to make it ready for winter but nobody's willing to spend in the short term so therefore the can yeah. gets kicked down the road and you can only kick a can down the road for so long 75 mm. years is a long time of can yeah. kicking yeah exactly <laughs> the other question i want to kind of hear your thoughts on it and i don't know if it's a bit controversial is is it designed or is it being like this on purpose for you know to use as a political vehicle when it comes to elections and campaigns you know is it kept in this state because it's always an opportunity, you know, when it comes to elections that we're going to fix NHS, we're going to increase funding um, when there is the opportunity to do more? Oh, I'd love to give a controversial answer to that and sort of say, yeah, it's just a political football. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I actually don't think it is. I think that ultimately it doesn't matter which political party you are. If you are forced, and it's it's us, right, as the ultimate, mm. the electorate, for some reason mm. we're not getting passionate enough around the fact yeah. of, of asking politicians to think in the long term. So, yeah. for instance, you know, there have been there have been for years, you know, this idea that we should sort of do cross-party uh, sort of thinking for the NH for the mm. NHS. I mean, you know, is it a political? Is it going to come up in elections? For sure, it's going to come up in yep. elections because right now it doesn't matter where you look in history. We haven't trained enough clinicians. We have been relying upon the rest of the world to bring nurses and healthcare assistants and mm. clinicians to come and you know help us in our NHS. And the problem is, as I say, if you kick a can down the road for so long and you're incentivized to kick that can down the road, I think you've got to solve a problem in a different way, which kind of comes back to the reason that I do what I do, right? Is that yep. rather than asking someone else to fix it for us, rather than me sort of thinking Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak are going to mm. solve the NHS, 
to which I hope, you know, I hope that they, uh, you know, I hope that they're, they're, they have some plans for it, some good plans for it. I also sort of think that we as an ind- we as individuals can do so much uh, to help problem solve in our in our kind of local communities and in our local hospitals and our local community centres and in our local GP surgeries. I mean, mm. you know, how have we got to a stage where? You know, because it's not what clinicians want, right? We don't want people to be waiting two to three weeks to see a GP. So we have to, Mm -hmm. I think, come up with innovative solutions. And I think that that's what is so wonderful around, you know, podcasts like this and your community Mm -hmm. that you have is the fact that it allows uh, perhaps the, the next generation to not get stifled in politics, but actually to be creative and to come up with problems. And I tell you what, there are people like me who are out there, like really willing you on and wanting you to kind of, you know, wanting to kind of pull these solutions through. Mm. That's yeah. what we want to do. And I, I kind of think that, you know, Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, all politics aside, I mm. think the best people are the people that, you know, the people that work within the system. Mm. Absolutely. So no. t- talking a little bit about having passionate clinicians come through now with solutions for our, our house now, the NHS. So we've seen a lot of technologies, a lot of med tech come out now recently. Um, what's, what's gotten you most excited about the things that are out there? Is it a particular platform, particular types of software? Is it AI? Um, what are you excited about in terms of the solutions now? being put forward okay i'm going to answer that question in two parts first there's the kind of the really exciting sort of sexy stuff which is around Mm. ai yeah but i'm actually going to revert just by starting with the basics okay yes so recently uh the government for instance have 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 spent money on uh, a report on ai right yep I mean, we all know AI works. We all know that it can help. Is it there? Yeah, no, because healthcare takes time and rightly so, it has to go through clinical approval. But we must also remember, and something that maybe the government are not uh, sense tracking, is Mm. do we have internet that works in a hospital and in a GP surgery? (laughs) (laughs) Do we have the software? Do we have the hardware? So it's a bit boring, I have to say, but getting the basics right really matters. And actually, if mm. we were going to spend on something, I would spend on that as a platform. Even for instance, you know, when you asked about previous projects, I've worked on some quite exciting sort of global reviews of um, blood test results. So, you know, you're getting into mm. laboratory information systems and proper geeky stuff, right? Yeah. Ultimately, that kind of stuff only works if you have data hygiene, if actually, yeah. you know, somebody's sodium result is recorded in the same way in one hospital as it is in the uh, a GP unit. If it's not, and the numbers are, are kind of in different locations, there's going to be errors and and an AI cannot learn from dirty data because if, if machines or if algorithms learn from, you know, junk data, junk comes mm. out. Yep. <laughs> yes. So I'm kind of also super interested in the, uh, the the getting the basics, the foundations right, and then the exciting bit, which is you know could go global um, for some of these kind of new companies, is the fact with mm. those basics being right, then the opportunities out there to help, um, you know, rather than just being an individual, the opportunities are out there to kind of go global if if uh, you know, if if the basics are there and if the data is right and it's got data integrity and mm. what's and what's coming through is, uh, you know, it's a bit more than just, um, you know, it has to be validated and clinically validated with decent mm. clinical outcomes. No, 
completely agree. And wonder what your thoughts are recently on kind of the various group chats with founders, operators in health tech, med tech that are solving kind of these core issues. The, the consensus or what the, the, the theme has been is their investors, their VCs are pushing them away from the NHS, the UK market towards kind of the Middle East to America for fear, you know, you can't have the NHS as the single payer. What if they pull the plug overnight, the resistance? So I saw that I was feeling a bit off about it. I don't know if it's something you've been seeing or what your thoughts are on that kind of sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is where politics could help a little bit, right? So you're right, there are certain times where actually that kind of top-down view. So look, the NHS is, as we all know, even though we do have a national health service, we know that even as something as basic as trying to procure, you know, gloves that you put on, uh, one hospital, you know, I don't know, it's five pounds, another hospital, it's 50p, right? So mm, if you're going to mm. do something national, then, you know, we've got all of these opportunities to do national procurement, uh, you know, and it's no different to kind of buying in bulk when you do your shopping, right? I mean, it, it, it getting the basics right. Um, And you are absolutely correct that in terms of these new innovative startups, I would say that the UK uh, has should be mindful, actually, I'm Mm. uh, going to do a plug for why the UK should be mindful, is the fact of we pre COVID, so pre pandemic, we're doing some amazing things with the National Health Service, because although you're right, it's different payers, it, we had an NHS number, we were quite digitally mature. And yeah. let's be honest, the frontline staff did a, an, an amazing study of COVID, which is kind of where the steroid result came from. And, mm. you know, when they did it as a group, they actually did it as a national service and, and credit to the frontline staff. However, other countries during that time, their politicians decided, okay, COVID is an opportunity. It's not a yeah. party, it's an opportunity. Right? Mm. <laughs> What we're trying to do with that opportunity is to say we're going to digitalize our health yep. service and we are going to, uh, you know, across different systems, hopefully in an integrated way. And as a result of having sort of rocket boosted that during COVID, it was hard work, but they did the hard work. And it's meant that there are now other countries, which yeah. I think startups in the UK are looking towards and investors are looking towards because it's no longer the NHS or nothing. Yeah, we are actually mm. now in a world of competition because people are now interested in the sector and they see the return on potential investment for it, for, you know, for this global opportunity to which kind of everybody woke up during the COVID years. Mm, definitely. I, I was going to come on to that question in sense of before the NHS was a goldmine, if you can prove something that works in the NHS, guaranteed ticks to any healthcare system in the world. Whereas yeah. now, even with, you know, Saudi and the 2030 initiatives, which country do you think in particular is leading the pack? per se, or doing super well? And where do we fit in in that landscape um, as a country? The, the opportunity in healthcare is still there, right? So, I mean, mm. um, you know, I was reading a report around the fact of, you know, you know that I love AI, right? So yeah. the AI opportunity in healthcare is kind of growing at, it's growing at kind of 50% year on year, right? The opportunity that you could, you could model. Now, that means that this sector is global. I actually think that healthcare yep. is globalizing, and that's no bad thing as, as you know, as standards and outcomes become more globalized. So I certainly don't think that, you know, the UK should look at it as all doom and gloom, right? It's okay. not all doom mm. and gloom. I think that I think that if you can validate it within the NHS, then I think that um, other countries, including the Gulf states and uh, you know, developing countries, they still, you know, we are extremely lucky here in the UK to actually have had the NHS as a foundation. And let's not also, let's give a shout out to all the different Royal Colleges, right? Because actually yeah. some of the reasons that we have that is because the training and standards have been led by our own academic Royal Colleges. So it's not doom and gloom. Having said that, 
yeah, we've got a bit of competition now, <laughs> right? So if yeah. you, so now is the time, and that's what's exciting about it, and exciting, I think, for for your listeners, is the fact that over the next five to ten years, it's it's you know finally these sorts of things, which have perhaps been a bit slow in the NHS, are now spreading across the world. So it's not doom mm. and gloom, but you can't hang around if you're going to get a bit of a wiggle on. No, definitely. <laughs> and thank you for highlighting it. Um, it always helps from someone that gets a broad vision of all that's happening in the landscape to kind of bring it to the forefront. Do you want me to give like a little sort of tip to somebody? So, yeah. so if somebody actually wanted to do that, what I would sort of say is that are, is a startup going to be able to get 100% of NHS contracts, right? Probably not, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But if they can get one, two, three, but even one, and actually get a good solid evidence base behind it and mm. validate it so rather than trying to you know just go out on full sales mode we're going to do everything we're going to sell to everybody yeah. do one thing well and actually you've got a global market it could be other nhs's but it could be other healthcare systems in the world mm. and i think that that sometimes people can get very distracted by kind of being told in startup land you know or let's uh, you know it's all about sales yeah sales is part of part of the package but it takes a multi kind of goes back to my sort of thing around it takes a multidisciplinary team to actually mm. have a robust business that can scale. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, Michelle, just because uh, when you said about AI, your face lit up again. So let's spend a little bit of time on AI. What gets you most excited about AI? And then I want to move into AI. Do we see at first solving the problems for the workforce or are we going to see patients have it in their hands first. So tools like, for example, before seeing a GP, you see Dr. AI, or are we gonna see the workforce and doctors using AI in their clerking uh, to solve that, uh, the time, the time sink of clerking uh, in their consultations? So yeah, let's take it away. Oh, what a great question. Love this question. You're right, I'm gonna be all excited about AI because I, I actually sort of think that it's gonna be all the things that you've encapsulated. So. We know, right, fact number one, no matter where you are in the world, we do not have enough care staff. Now yeah. that can be everything from being a carer at home, which is often often an unforgotten uh, job, which might not even be paid, all the way through to being a super specialist. Mm. Now, everything from a nurse to a midwife, to a radiographer, you name it, we don't have enough humans in the world, right? Demand. <laughs> yeah humans in the world that are being trained yeah. so even though we're going to train them you know an ai can even come into training and helping uh, with training around the world we're still not going to have enough people so what mm. ai has to do and urgently has to do we can't hang around and wait for this by the way it urgently has to help allow humans to actually do what they do best which is to care and to do the human side and it has to take away all of that slightly more i mean the first low-hanging fruit is let's take away the boring stuff right yeah. all of i mean in my day, I used to handwrite, right? My ugly handwriting, like 15 pages later and fax it through, oh, right? Okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Showing my it's age. Still, I'm laughing because it still happens. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> I agree with that as well, right? And even if it's not happening, what is happening is that, um, you know, as, as, as nurses or as doctors, you're logging into 15 different systems with, yeah. the, with the swirl of doom going round on the screen, right? Like, just yeah. wait, 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 wait. And we know, it doesn't matter which study that you, you kind of, anywhere in the world, by the way, that that kind of 
time that is taken away from our frontline staff is just something which AI and automation can gift back to the world. Yeah, yeah. But getting it right is what we need to do, right? And as I sort of say, some of that comes back to the very basic stuff of data integrity and, you know, having a platform that can, and, you know, maybe ways that can clean data to through to interoperability, right? Mm-hmm. Through to uh, then helping clinicians, you know, actually go out and co-create things. So one of the things, one of the examples that um, I often give uh, is when Epic came to to Cambridge, right? So Epic, the big American hospital EHR uh, system, its first installation uh, was in Edinburgh's hospital. And although Epic is loved now and and, uh, has many, many sort of clinical decision functionalities and has many ways of which it interoperates across the whole hospital it doesn't always do community but at least across across Mm. a hospital a lot of that actual learning actually came from the national health service right so i know for a fact that many of my clinical colleagues and my friends spent quite a lot of time iterating the code to make it work for the national health service because obviously it was an Mm. american system that came to the uk so i would also say to all nhs managers or anyone else out there is that don't forget that the nhs would also be allowed i mean that to actually sort of say, look, for the work that I am also putting in with my clinical time, my nurses, my midwives who are helping iterate your system for the better, give us some skin in the game, you know, give us some shares back to the National Mm. Health Service so that when, you know, when we kind of, because that's what business is about, by the way, it's about co-creating and about helping. And, you know, maybe we've missed the boat with with somebody as big as Epic, but with a lot of these startups also, don't be afraid to sort of say, look, if a hospital is helping me develop a service because that's multidisciplinary team it has to work on the front line right and mm. also the back office and the, the back function has to work there's no reason why you can't sort of co-create that and actually be generous with each other and i think some of that yeah. generosity has often been forgotten for for our healthcare system and i'd like no. and you know that's one thing that i'd love to change and i think it's starting to change but hopefully people like you can help spread the message yeah. and remind people very interesting to see sort of the NHS and the managers get involved with startups and not just say, oh, it's a one-sided pilot. Instead, let's work together. Let's really drive this together. Um, what's our skin in the game? What's your skin in the game? Um, I would love to actually I propagate think, um, that message. I think a few hospitals, or I think the bigger trusts are exploring it from what I've heard. But it reminded me of, I think you tweeted it, of the, of the Aston Martin with the, with the number plate, free EHR. And then, and then I read the tweet and I was like, yeah, this is, this is bang on. Like, and then, you know, when you have skin in the game, you feel own, it's not necessarily to do with the equity and the money. It's that ownership, that sense of pride that we are helping kind of bring this to market. And I, and look, I, I think that in a glo- as healthcare has become more global and, you know, the pandemic has really shown us that, right? We all had to work together as, as a world to mm. actually, to, to bring solutions and so that we can all be out and about again in the world, which an amazing lesson. And I think that what we could learn from that, and you are right, some trusts such as, you know, uh, Milton Keynes, even Edinburgh, some London trusts are starting to develop these ideas. But I guess I would just, you're, I would just remind clinicians and managers that you're right. The better product, the better outcome when you co-create it together, mm. there is no harm in asking, you know, like, give me a bit of equity because ultimately yeah. if a nurse or a midwife or somebody has spent time developing it to the front line, why shouldn't the NHS gain? Yeah. And we should have been doing it 10 years ago, but it's never too late to start. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. It's one of those things that makes sense, but doesn't happen. And then you look back and like you said, in hindsight, you think, hey, do you know what? We should have done this earlier. Talking about all of this stuff, I feel we've, we've, we've had like an intense conversation 
I want to take it a step back and focus back on Michelle again. You know, you've been at the same firm for close to two decades. What has kept you there? Do you love your job that much? But more so, it's intense, the role of strategy consulting, innovation. How do you look after yourself? You know, what keeps you saying, how do you have fun? Wow, that's a big question. How do I have fun? Other than chatting to you guys on a podcast. <laughs> so look, I mean, there is nothing. Um, I'm actually going to talk about neuro shields, right? And uh, what's neuroprotective. And I actually quite like the term a neuro shield, um, yeah. which is uh, a word I heard quite recently, actually. So um, I think that there is nothing more protective than thinking about others and actually trying to work out, look, how can I problem solve? So I don't, I, I don't really, although... You know, like I have, uh, you sort of talk about a career, right? As I sort of said, I don't really sort of see it as a career. I'm blessed to working with great people who are willing to problem solve quite challenging problems. And uh, I think that that is the blessing that I've been granted. And it's something which Kandesic actually does very well because it is a true ethos of a multidisciplinary team, which can take some mm. very complicated things and try and simplify them and therefore uh, can help them grow. Now, you know, there are other larger consultancies um, having worked in the NHS, you know, there's, there's challenges of working in big organizations. So as I was say at Kandesic, we can be fast, we can be nimble and we can choose, right? What to, what to work on, which is, mm. um, uh, quite different to working it in other places because we can sort of say if there's a problem somewhere you know we would encourage the team to actually go out and sort of say look if you can spot a problem and you want to help solve it we're encouraging you to go out there and find a solution and then actually mm. we will help kind of uh, rocket boost that into mm. into action now I, I would sort of say sadly I think there are more problems now in healthcare than there were when I was <laughs> <laughs> to try and do this so you know it's kind of mushroomed uh, all the opportunities but this itself is extremely neuroprotective right so if we were to think about this um in something else which i'm very passionate about is around brain health so yeah. it kind of goes back to my raw love which is um around you know neurodevelopment and and how we think around the brain so you know as clinicians we're always sort of thinking of blood results and yeah. all of and you know scans and all those things are imperative but sometimes we also forget you know, what we're actually feeding our minds with. Also, what our brain is converting into connections. So we have more connections in our brain than there are stars in the universe, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> so you have to kind of remember how individual we all are. And therefore, when we're actually thinking, and I know you were mentioning Dr. Google earlier, but we have to also be thinking around, uh, you know, when I grew up, you know, I didn't have a smartphone. I wasn't kind of being sort of battered by uh, by adverts and by, mm. by all of these other things on uh, on the media. And, and I don't know, like to give you a bit of an insight, I have had so many. I mean, I haven't seen Barbie the movie yet. Maybe I will. Yeah. But I've had so much Barbie coming at me, right? <laughs> You're gonna have Maybe to see that's it. My, my think algorithm. <laughs> Probably. Well, I don't know. And therefore lies the question, right? Is that when we're kind of being fed all of this information, one of my future passions is also to think about how do we protect each other as a society around the mm. fact that people are trying to drag us into a particular way of thinking. Um, and I think one of the, the beauties of, of kind of a life where I've sort of seen the pre-digital version and, and this sort of post-digital version is that, um, yeah, I think that, you know, part of the reason that, that some of our, our demand for child and adolescent mental health services and, and yeah. more kind of challenging situations out there, it's a global issue uh, that, quite frankly, people like Meta, like Google, you know, or yeah. like Amazon, they haven't solved as yet. And that's 
as I sort of say, and that sort of healthy thinking. So that's my kind of drive for the future is the fact of, yeah, I'm not so much sort of, uh, it's, I'm not so much kind of sort of pinning uh, things into kind of just a bucket of a job. It's much more yeah. around, you know, what do you, what problems do I want to solve? I mean, if I had my life again, I might want to solve climate change, but I'm too late for that. Mm. <laughs> no, it's incredible. And I think probably one of the reasons as to why you're, you're super good at what you do is the human element. I feel like sometimes we're very quick problem, solution, tech, finance, funding, and we always forget the people about it. Whereas for you, I feel like the people at the forefront and how they fit into it all. And I think that's where we, a lot of people go wrong. Oh, the, that's so heartfelt. And you're so right. You're, you're kind of like a, a kindred spirit there. So you're absolutely right. So for all that the importance, so I love all things digital, all things data. Um, and I and I really believe that, you know, digital has to be part of the solution. But it will yeah. never it will never take away from uh, that sort of. Definitely. And I, yeah. And I think that, that's what it is. And that's what strikes me the most from you. And it brings me on the kind of connecting people is... Tell us a bit more about authoring a book. I love reading, big fan. How does one publish a book? Where did the idea come from? Tell us more. There you go. <laughs> book. Got a book. Well, if anybody wants a book, that's that, listen to this. I'm going to plug it in at the, uh, in the show notes and send the link as well. Uh, but tell us more. Well, I was going to say, anybody that's uh, listened through this podcast, uh, I'm also very happy to, to post them out a book. Uh, but look, that came from, uh, it was pretty healthy thinking. Right. Mm. So when we're thinking about healthy thinking, it was uh, in the slightly sort of earlier days because it was pre-pandemic of thinking, is artificial intelligence really just trying to replicate the human mind? Mm. Now, if it is trying to replicate the human mind, it's going to take quite a long time to get there. Right. Because it's not just movements like a robot. It's like it's not just speech. It's not just vision. It's not just sound. You know, you can even get an AI tongue now that can start tasting food. Oh right? I know it's amazing. Right. But ultimately, what your human brain does so amazingly well is it brings together all of that information slightly more in your frontal lobe, as you know, and then it's kind of trying to make sense of the world. Mm. And that to me is something that I felt, you know, and as we'll say, the book is called Big Brain Revolution, Artificial Intelligence Spy or Savior. And it's in that way, because ultimately, you know, we can all get pulled, can't we, by by scroom, by doom scrolling, right? So we're getting pulled in by these kind of like yeah. algorithms that are trying to kind of nudge us into thinking a particular way and into doing. And I actually sort of felt that, you know, out of all of the things that I wanted to do in life, um, I just, I wanted to be able to put it out there in the public domain and sort of say, we should think about it, right? Because actually what often you don't get a chance to do in modern day time is actually to think about the impact that this very fast social media and everything else that's yeah. buzzing at us, and it's super buzzy, right? But what it's mm. doing to uh, our own thoughts and our own neural connections. And in fact, modern day functional MRI scans can now start to evidence that people's brains are wiring in different ways to how mm. they were sort of 20 odd years ago so that's pretty amazing right and i'm not saying it's good i'm not saying it's bad i'm just saying that i think we should be mindful of it yeah so we can start thinking about it and and now of course you know it's a bit more of an exciting topic because you know finally now these sorts of large language models are around yeah people uh like you know mark zuckerberg are starting to also talk about it yeah mm. definitely and i think as with all things that there's the initial fear i'm sure you know when the, the internet came out and mobile phones and app and then it normalizes and then you know it does become this whole savior and grace and people are like damn it <laughs> which i've done this 10 years earlier right um no thank you for for putting that out into the world. I'm always a big fan of people that go on to publish 
written work. I think there's a, there's a certain beauty to it, right? I know we live in a digital world and it's online content, but having a physical copy that you, you kind of offer is amazing. Oh, that's very kind. Although, yeah, writing a book is... Uh... It's harder than I was expecting. And I think if I were to do it again, I think I'd, I'd first up ask a bit of chat GPT. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> you know. Got no shame in the fact that I think I'd do that first. But yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, uh, there is there is something, I think, around, um, yeah, when you author something, you know, chat GPT will give you sort of something that's just out there, right? And Because it has to kind of, it's only it's only got access mm. to data that it's got hold of. Yeah. Whereas actually what you're trying to do is is think of the next generation and actually putting information out there to try and help others. And as yeah, you know, AI is just not that intelligent to do that enough. It doesn't think like a parent. It's not thinking about the next generation. It's yeah. just, you know, superficially gathering the data that it can get hold of. And that could be good data or bad data. And, and, and then some of these sorts of AI ethics questions come up. Yeah, mm. no, no, definitely. It On... definitely is an exciting space. On that note, uh, Michelle, so for the doctors listening in, so a lot of people and us included, we talk a lot about AI. It's going to be part of our daily sort of use case, just like a mobile phone one day. Should doctors right now and clinicians and everyone, to be honest, who's listening in on this, would you say they need to start learning how to use AI tools? So, for example, one thing I learned quite a lot is learning about prompts, right? Learning how to actually prompt certain AI um, uh, softwares and platforms. Um, is it something you'd say get an early start on or just hang on, see whether see what happens first and then start learning? What's your advice? I, I always think there's a good idea to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in. I mean, one of my biggest advice to all doctors out there is, you know, don't don't let the NHS just grind you down into daily grind, right? Remain inquisitive, mm. remain curious, mm. remain like being excited about the future because the future is actually yours. It's actually not mm. about kind of all this other stuff it's actually in your hands so an ai is such a big field you know it's great that you're there kind of like you know maybe with the sort of slightly larger language models and you're able mm. to kind of ask you know get quite clever with the questions and then that's going to help you train that model more other yeah. people it might be other things right so yeah. there's mm. so much that you can do just get curious and go with your passion because there there can be no wrong in learning what it's like uh just from you know, the raw basics and will it evolve and will it change for sure? But that's the exciting bit of the journey. No, yeah, amazing. Absolutely. And the follow-on question I know they'll be thinking is how do you stay on top of it all? There is so much coming out, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, threads recently, which I'm sure you probably know about. How do you stay on top of it all? Where do you get the best content, the, the, the best up-to-date stuff? Because it's overwhelming sometimes. Oh, I listen to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to cut that out and post that everywhere. <laughs> the whole episode is, is just a little segment. <laughs> so, I mean, look, there is, you're right, there is too much information out there, right? There is information overload. Yeah. And so you can't possibly uh, sort of feel that, you know, you're, you as an individual can stay on top of information. So let me give you like a, a real example, right? So um, when you read a clinical academic paper, right, it takes me quite a long time, if I'm honest. And then, you know, then I've got to reread it. I've got to like go and work out kind of got to link together kind of, you know, not just the diagrams or the results and the conclusion and how it all fits together. It takes me quite a long time. Mm. Whereas if you can train, you know, an AI to sort of do that, then, um, you know, it can actually kind of super read, right? It can super yeah. read all of these papers and spew out kind of uh, what you're looking for. So I would sort of say that, 
in a similar way, it's a bit like being uh, your own parent, right? Mm. So effectively, you know, you don't really know what a child's going to put in its mouth or kind of, you know, where it's going to run to. I mean, you know, well, we know that kids do, right? That's, that's the way mm-hmm. they live. Or, or a, if you're looking at a dog, you know, and you're taking the dog on a lead. But what you're doing is you're actually sort of saying, oh, actually, you know, I know where I want to go. I'm taking mm. this, we'll go with the dog, dog example. I'm taking, you know, the dog on the walk and the dog's not leading me. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, mm, you'd be like oh, yeah. <laughs> down the road with the dog. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, I think that that's where it comes to. So you have to kind of know what it is that you're interested in, because in modern day time, what's the beauty of it is that you can access a lot of that information and you can become an expert far quicker than, you know, when I was at university, where we literally had to go to the library, go and find the book and then go and find the reference. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So. It was just a much, much slower journey. So I would sort of say that, yeah, the exciting thing about this new world is if you can take the the more kind of executive functioning view yeah. and decide what it is that you're tra- what problem you're trying to solve. Actually, some of that kind of hard work actually made easier in modern day time. As long as you don't get distracted by Barbie and Barbie videos, which, <laughs> which also spring up. It's so hard. It's hard, hard not to. Uh, no, thank you for kind of that oversight and overview. The last final question is from the expo- experience, exposure, kind of seeing and doing so much. What advice would you give to clinicians that want to do things beyond traditional medicine with their degree? And it might, doesn't necessarily have to be management consulting. What are the opportunities they can kind of explore? I think that's a great question. And I think that the opportunities for clinicians in modern day world are, you know, the world is your oyster. Um, mm. And I sort of say that with kind of sort of twofold, because one, back in my day, you know, you're, you never left the hospital, right? I mean, I'm not sure that I left the hospital for my junior doctor years, fully blingers. These days, you live in a world where um, you are, you know, I know it's not perfect, but your career can be a little bit more flexible. So mm. I am not one for sort of saying that I think every doctor needs to leave frontline care, right? Because goodness, mm. I'm not getting any younger, right? And we desperately need doctors and nurses to kind of be doing some job. But I also think you've got the opportunity to have... Uh, to try other things. So you're right, it might be trying consulting, but that won't be for everybody. It might be trying to kind of, you know, do your own startup, but that won't be for everybody. It might be trying to, you know, go into the world of uh, investing. It might be going into the world of, you know, trying to communicate with politicians, right? The world is out there. It could be going global. Because mm-hmm. in modern day time, again, as I sort of said, there is no country in the world with enough staff. And we're also, yeah. so I just sort of think that the next generation of, of clinicians and care staff, I would sort of get your, the, the headset that I think that I would frame it in is that this is, the time is now and it's your time to go out and co-create and co-solve. So sort of co-create solutions to solve modern Mm. healthcare concerns, because, you know, it's a great blessing that we're all living longer. It's a great blessing that, you know, we're all into sort of exciting things like longevity and, you know, that we're living longer with more, more conditions, but ultimately, you know, that brings, um, different sort of socioeconomic burdens to the whole world. And, I mean, you know, you don't have to kind of be doing medicine 100% of your time yeah. to still be helping solutions on a global scale. No, definitely. Uh, thank you. I think that's a perfect and amazing way to kind of bring this to an end. It was super fun and absolute pleasure speaking to Michelle. We love you even more. Um, 
but no thank you and oh. we want to thank you and our, our listeners as well and we will share the link to your book we'll kind of leave your linkedin and i'm sure a lot of people may reach out to kind of learn a bit more about Please. what you do your thoughts so no thank you well thank you both i mean look the future is yours and may i just sort of say that you know you and i'm sure all your listeners are a great you know you're a great powerhouse to the future and i can only say that i'm here for your journey and i'm rooting for you all along the way thank you Amazing. thanks guys